What We Consume. Ahoy, ahoy, and welcome to What We Consume, a show about all the things we put into our minds and bodies. I'm your host, King Hagathorn, with me, as always, is... It's Kevin, a new and rejuvenated Kevin that can breathe, so he may be coming with more muster, more lust, more charisma, more uh, other words. Yeah, we're going. And with us, as always, is Michael. I'm here. I'm wanting to go back and play Metal Gear Solid already, but I'm here. Oh my gosh, did you guys hear that? He King changed it with us as always. Oh no. He's, yeah, he's starting to cement himself inside of this. I'm here forever. I mean, I've been here forever technically because of the intro, but, you know. Last week we talked about a variety of spooky related things, but most prominently about poisoned Halloween candy. And I mentioned that we would continue to talk about poison in this episode, specifically the Tylenol murders of 1982. But, as is often the case when I mention up- upcoming episodes, I get a little ahead of myself. We will be talking about the Tylenol murders, but this has grown from a one-off to a two-part episode because to really talk about the Tylenol murders, we have to begin with a guy mainly called James William Lewis. Okay, let's talk about the real reason. The real reason is King likes to get carried away with himself, and he just can't stop, and he likes riding, he likes sitting there... He just he likes to compile the information and it keeps going and going and going. That's the real reason. Not because we we could have talked about it. Hey, I mean, I, you know, you don't have to preference the, the beginning, but we were going to. Well, I say that mainly because we're not really getting to the Tylenol murders as an event until next week. James Lewis. He was born Theodore Wilson Jr. in Memphis, Tennessee, in 1946. His birth parents were Theodore and Opal Wilson. They were migrant workers and moved to Waco, Texas not long after. Then in 1948, when he was two, Theodore Sr. abandoned his family and skipped town. A few months later, Opal decided to do the same, leaving the baby Theodore with her two daughters who were seven and nine in a transient motel near Joplin, Missouri. That is proper parenting. Yep. He's a good parent. You just leave them, let them fend for themselves. If they make it in the world, they'll probably either do something really awesome or really terrible. Yeah, so the children were discovered a few days later, and social workers split up the siblings. Theodore was taken by Joplin's big brother agency, who gave custody of the three-year-old to Floyd and Charlotte Lewis. So they renamed him James William Lewis. You know, like you would a dog you got from the shelter or something. Mm-hmm. That's how we're mostly going to be referring to him as either James or Jim Wilson. Uh, sorry, James or Jim Lewis uh, going forward. Jimothy. Because it's not going to be the only name he uses. So his adoptive parents weren't the best off financially. Floyd was a sharecropper and the primary caregiver, while Char- uh, Charlotte worked in a shirt factory. This came with the added bonus that they lived near a chemical plant that manufactured explosives. According to his cousin Lucille Mallet, James was, quote, in a lot of trouble, a very mixed up boy. He always did things that ordinary people wouldn't. My aunt tried to give him back to Big Brothers because she couldn't handle him, but they wouldn't take him back. Talk about bre- buyer's remorse. What does it mean by Big Brothers? Like, 
just like the Big Brothers and Big Sisters of America's like it, it's a okay. charity organization. Okay. I didn't know if it was actually meaning that or like they, yeah. they had like I mean that's as as far as I can tell that's what it means. Okay. But, but she tried to give him back. Yeah. It's like, uh, this one's defective. Can we get a different one? Like, maybe that. store credit or something? I understand that, man. Dude, the kids these days... Some of them you just need to get back. <laughs> so when James was 12, Floyd died of a stroke. Meaning he's really 0 for 4 on parents so far. Sounds like he's a curse. Yeah, well, his adoptive mother remarried in 1964 to Glenn Nelson. So James did well in school. He played trombone in the marching band. He got good grades. He worked on the school yearbook. Schoolmates found him to be a sensitive, vulnerable boy. He was considered a person who was very accepting to others, even when they were not as accepting of him. Uh, Jerry Dean, a Cave Junction police officer, called him, quote, good-natured. Some students pulled pranks on him, but he did not retaliate. But while he seemed normal and even pleasant in school, his home life appeared to be a very different story. As a teenager, his like when he was a teenager, his mother allegedly slept with a gun under her pillow because she was so afraid of him. When he was 19, he allegedly broke several, several of his stepfather's ribs and chased his parents with an axe. Uh, he also tried to commit suicide by taking 36 Anison tablets. What is Anison? Huh? What is anison? I I believe like it, it's a medication that's like over the counter. I I believe it's similar to Tylenol or aspirin or anything. Oh, okay. There's a reason it's not around anymore. We'll talk about that next episode. Got gotcha. you. I think anison is still around, isn't it? Isn't it anison a name is brand? I'm pretty I sure. I have no idea. <clears throat> I think it's just it, I think it's just pain relief. It might have just been off the shelves for a while, but it. I'm pretty sure it is got it a- next for a n a c i n. Yeah, it's a, you can still buy it. Okay, well, uh, for a bit it was off the shelves, uh, but we'll get to that uh, next time. So the first documented sign of psychological trouble came in the summer of 1966 when he was 19. According to records, the teen went missing for about two days when uh, that June, and was found in a shallow pond, apparently trying to drown himself. Um, so, sounds like, so he's had multiple attempts at suicide. Uh, in 1966, he was committed to the Missouri State Mental Hospital, where he was diagnosed with catatonic schizophrenia. Oh, lovely. Yeah, yeah, good, uh, man, he's just picking all the great lottery cards. Um, so the document also stated that, uh, Lewis spoke about planning, quote, the murder of a girlfriend's husband and the murder of his parents during his hospitalization. He would later claim that this was all a ruse that he and his parents collaborated on together to avoid the Vietnam draft. Um, Always when he was to re- avoid the Vietnam draft. Yeah, I mean, I get it. Uh, when he was released from the hospital, he attended the University of Missouri at Kansas City, uh, UMKC, go ruse. Uh, federal records indicate Lewis returned to the state hospital in 1967 after a disastrous first semester there. Uh, he failed several courses, apparently. Lewis later denied being hospitalized more than once, but he uh, he's not real big on telling the truth. <laughs> um, 
It was at college that he met and fell in love with Leanne Miller. They would be married Thanksgiving Day, 1968. That is a, that's a weird day to get married. Oh, yeah, I was going to say that, too. That just seems, you know, anniversaries are going to be all weird and everything. Well, I guess, I mean, you don't have to pay for catering since everybody else, is, since everybody's already bringing food. You just be like, hey. I guess, but, like, Thanksgiving, you know, is always on a Thursday. It's not always the same date, so it's going to be like, oh, this one, like, we're not going to be able to attend your anniversary party because we're at Thanksgiving. Yeah. So... What's more uh, important, so, uh, anniversary or Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to go with Thanksgiving. I would, yeah, I, I, I know. Would I probably agree. pick Thanksgiving over. Hold on. I'd probably pick Thanksgiving over my anniversary. I love Thanksgiving. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> um, so uh, Leanne and. Uh, Jim had a lot in common with each other, uh, and they basically became each other's ride or die very early on. So for the most part, they seemed like a pretty good pair. After college, they both started working as bookkeepers at Haley's Instant Tax Service. They managed the operation for a couple of years, and peace and everything seemed good. And in June 1969, Leanne gave birth to the couple's first and only child, Tony Ann. She had Down syndrome and an assortment of other health issues, but Jim and Leanne showered her with love and affection all the same. Well, that's sweet. Uh, Yeah. One day, the owner, Bob Haley, uh, said he wanted to take a desk calculator home, and Jim completely lost his shit. Like, just flipped out on him for wanting to take a calculator home. Hey, that calculator's got to stay exactly where it's supposed to stay. Yeah, but it's, like, it's his business. Like, he can do whatever the fuck he wants with those calculators. Yeah. I, very strange reason to lose his shit. But in any case, they stopped working there. Uh, I, I'm not sure if he got fired or they just quit. But in any case, they're done there. He could have just had, like, a little bit of a psychotic break. Because he, you, you said he's diagnosed with a bunch of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he certainly has uh, the background to... Uh, have issues uh in any case they decided to go into business for themselves and created lewis and lewis business tax service they operated the business out of their home on Troost avenue in kansas city jim lewis helped out there but multiple sources later on told the chicago tribune that his wife did most of the work uh he like he he liked to look important and he liked to you know have have eyes and ears on everything but it seems like she did the actual work that made the company run well, you know that just he sounds just wanted like to be the face good business model <laughs> yeah so uh as a toddler little tony ann would sit in the window and wave at the people that walked past or play on the floor because they they ran this out of their home um so like they just had a big window up front uh, and she would you know wave at people passing by and one of those people was an elderly man named Raymond West, who waved back at Tony Ann one day and decided to stop in. He was like, oh, I could use some tax uh, stuff. I've never Oops. once walked by or driven by a tax place and been like, I need some tax help. So that is Raymond West. What a so after talk- guy. Huh? He looks what cool, guy. man. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he's like... I, I don't know if he's in his 60s at that point, but, like, uh, during this course of the story, he's 
Mm, yeah, he beamed at 60s. Okay. Um, so after talking with the Lewises, he became a client and a friend. Uh, he was also there uh, to comfort them when Tony had corrective heart surgery. He was also there when Tony Ann died from complications from her heart surgery on December 10th, 1974. So the complications were that her sutures tore, like the sutures on her heart, oh, or, shit. or at least on her chest. How old was she? She was, I believe, five. Okay. Yeah, uh, she would have been five and a half. Uh, the sutures were made of uh, polypropylene and sold under the brand name Proline, trademarked by Johnson & Johnson in 1968. Uh, they're still used in cardiac bypass surgeries to this day, but I'm sure there's been some updates to their creation yeah, there's all so. there's everything nothing's 100 percent. you know we always yeah. got that 99 percent. yeah and like a five-year-old with that kind of uh massive surgery like it i i i can imagine they would get up to all kinds of things that could rip them out um but uh according to an fbi report in 1982 quote jim was a loving with tony he never showed anger about tony's condition or blamed anyone uh, the Luces continued with their tax service, never having another child. But they continued to talk about Tony to any clients willing to listen and proudly showed off her drawings and photos. Then at around three years after Tony's death, they met and befriended Percy Menzies, a pharmaceutical ex uh, executive from India. Menzies also had a special needs son, uh, and the Luces helped them find a place to live in Kansas City and obtain visas working towards permanent citizenship. Jim Lewis tried to launch a business with Menzies and a mutual friend. The business would be selling industrial pill presses in developing countries. According to Menzies, Lewis also wanted to import sporting equipment and semi-precious stones. That's interesting business yeah, that, ventures. Yeah, Just a very weird combo. It is, for sure. Yeah, so uh, the relationship soon soured after Menzies realized Lewis's eyes were bigger than it than it uh, than his stomach, and more importantly, bigger than his bank account. "Quote: uh, He definitely had some issues. That feeling of uh, grandiosity and all that. He was trying to punch way above his weight." So Menzies and Lewis split ways. Menzies went on to a successful career at Dupont Pharmaceuticals and then a rehabilitation center in St. Louis, which he appears to still be running to this to this day. Uh, Jim Lewis, uh, on the other hand, ended up being a subject of this podcast. And he also went back to hanging out with Ray Lu or sorry, Ray West, uh, more than Ray West really bargained for. So by the time he was 72 years old, uh, he was a retired delivery man, he was never married, and an, he was an, an eccentric but positive influence in his neighborhood. He was a lifelong bachelor, he lived in the same neighborhood as his mother since 1946, but she had died in 1977. So we're now in 1978. Uh, since then, West had retired. Like I said, he took daily walks. He read the evening paper on his porch swing and drove an old convertible. Uh, sometimes he would pull off his long wig to reveal his bald head underneath and just like wave it around while he was driving. Mm, what a fun guy. That's weird. Yeah, he seems like a fun guy. On Sunday, July 23rd, 1978, West went to the florist, as he did every Sunday, um, and around 6.30 p.m. that night, he called his friend Candy Lowe to chat for about an hour. 
He confided in her that he had an upset stomach, but would still be out later in that week to fix a refrigerator. He also confessed that Jim Lewis, his tax man, had been hanging around the house quite a bit against his wishes. Uh, like, he, he he would come around and he'd just be like, oh yeah, come in, and he's like, oh, I really wish this guy would get the fuck out of here. <laughs> but in any case, the next day, nobody heard from Ray West. Uh, Charles Banker, who had been a friend of Ray's for almost 40 years, became concerned when Ray didn't answer his phone. You know, he's retired, he's usually at home. Yeah. Unless he's out riding in his convertible. Yeah. Uh, So, um, Banker and his wife drove by Ray's house. The uh, house was securely locked with padlocks, as it had been since the flood the year before. So, like, he just had, like, big-ass padlocks on his doors instead of, like, a normal, like, deadbolt or anything. Right. Uh, but Ray's car was also still in the garage, and no one answered when Banker knocked. Banker went around the back of the house and found one window shade up, allowing him to peer into West's bedroom, but all he saw was the bed unmade and the sheets pulled back. It wasn't much, but Banker still had a bad feeling, and he called the police. They asked if West had any uh, other associates that might have known where he could be, uh, so he said, Jim Baker, or sorry, Jim Lewis. So the cops called around looking for answers. When they got to Jim Lewis, the tax man uh, told them that Ray had gone to the Ozarks for three to four days with his girlfriend. That satisfied police, but not Raymond. Like I said, he had known Raymond for about 40 years, and uh, like since Banker had rented a room from West's mother all those years ago, uh, they spoke often, celebrated holidays together, and were so close that Banker's daughter Charlotte called West Uncle Ray. In all that time, Ray had never had a romantic partnership, so Banker filed a missing persons report. Two days later, Banker drove by the house again, still concerned about what was going on. This time, the bedroom shade had been pulled down so he could no longer see inside, but what he could see was a note on the front door that had not been there the day before. He took a look at it. It was written on Lewis and Lewis letterhead and read, quote, Ray is out of town until Thursday. For further, call Jim. Banker decided to call, but not Jim Lewis. Instead, he called the police again. This time, police forced their way inside, and Banker followed. Everything appeared to be in order, but they spotted a note on the coffee table that Banker found suspicious. It read, quote, please, do, please don't disturb until after one. Sleeping late. Raymond. A couple of problems with this. For one, who writes a note like that when they live alone? Like, yeah. Kind of weird. Um... Two, uh, Banker assured the police that not only was the handwriting not Wes, but he had never referred to himself as Raymond except on checks. Everything about this disturbed and confused Baker, who was increasingly more concerned about his friend. The police were mm, less concerned. So, Banker bought a couple of new padlocks to replace the ones currently keeping Wes's house closed. He kept one key for himself and gave the other to police, should they need to return in the future. And as Banker and his friend... Uh, Jack Cook uh, were replacing the padlocks, Jim Lewis rolled up. Banker claimed that Lewis ran up to the porch asking him what the hell they were doing, to which Banker responded, what the hell does it look like I'm doing? I'm putting on new locks. That appeared to have calmed down Lewis, who stayed and talked to them for a bit before getting in his car and leaving. But he didn't go far. Banker noticed him parked down the street behind a delivery truck, just waiting. Then the delivery truck pulled away, leaving Lewis exposed, but he still stuck around for another five minutes watching before finally actually driving off. 
This doesn't sound sketchy, like, at all. No, no, this sounds normal. Uh, so Banker went down the street to the Park National Bank, where West had an account. He asked them if they had had any unusual activity on the account, and in fact, there was. The vice president of the bank told him that the bank was refusing to co uh, cover a $5,000 check allegedly signed by Raymond West because they thought it was a forgery. So West was, like, super hyper-vigilant when it came to money. I think that's probably, like, the nicest way to put it. Uh, particularly his own. Meaning he never wrote a check for more than $100 without alerting the bank first. They received no such alert about this. The check was dated July 23rd, 1978, and the last, which was the last day anyone saw West, and it was made out to Lewis & Lewis EA. Lewis told the police that the money was a loan from West at 8%. Banker did not return to Ray's house until August 14th. Like, there just wasn't a lot going on. But this now makes uh, 21 days since West went missing. He's, uh, this he's time still on sabbatical or whatever. Yeah, well, this time the house smelled awful. Uh-oh. Dead body. So Banker come... Yeah, so Banker come through the house looking for answers. At first glance, the bedroom still looked the same as it had through the window, but as he looked, Banker found some linens and pillows lying on the floor. West's belt loop key ring that was made from a horse harness, and some other stuff that made it suspicious, besides the smell. Uh, then he moved a sheet and found dried blood. Once again, he called the police. It was August, the outside temps were above 95 degrees. Ray had been missing for three full weeks at that point. Combined with the smell of and the dried blood, they knew they were looking for a body. So they moved furniture and scoured the room, uh, scoured the house looking for clues. After moving furniture in the guest room, police found a bullet hole and four-inch square stain on the floor underneath it. They checked the basement to find Ray's favorite chair, uh, lawn chair covered in red stains, next to a green plastic trash bag containing West's wig, eyeglasses, and bloody sheets. They also found blood stains in the guest. Uh, bedroom closet, which was the only access to the attic. I don't know how they didn't see any of this shit like the first time they searched, but um, you, you know, know whatever. The police for you. Yeah. Uh, so they found the body up in the attic. The stench was overwhelming. The corpse was so decomposed that it was largely unrecognizable. A sheet had been tied over the head, making it mummify. The uh, legs had been severed at the hip joint, and Ray's gold Seiko watch was found on the body. It hadn't been wound since July 23rd, 1978. But the body was so decomposed it was impossible to get a positive ID from fingerprints or facial recognition, and they didn't have any luck with hair samples or dental records because Ray was bald, and his teeth were dentures made by a defunct dentist. Damn. Oh, yeah, so I, I think it's pretty obvious it's him, though. I mean, most likely... <laughs> But but for now, like they're like they're just tentatively like yeah probably I don't know why he, there'd be a different body here wearing his shit. But in any case, I'll spare the rest of the details. But the other thing about the state of the body is they couldn't find a cause of death. Like because like, it was so de decomposed. That's part of it. Um, the medical examiner searched for a bullet hole uh, due to the hole in the wall, but they came up empty. They finally determined that he died, likely from a gunshot, and then the body was dismembered and hoisted into the attic piece by piece with a triple pulley system, much like which, much like what would be used to string up a hunted animal to be dressed. Uh, so police called it a very disorganized murder. Uh, they dusted the attic for fingerprints and only found one, a thumbprint on the pulley. 
They pulled the print, put it on an evidence card, and entered it into evidence. After they found the body, police tracked down Jim Lewis and arrested him. Uh, he was handcuffed and brought to the station, where he was put in a holding cell briefly and then questioned for several hours. Without reading him, as Miranda writes. Oh, they, asked, they asked him if they killed Ray West. He said no. They asked him if he put the note on the door. He said yes. They asked him if he knew anyone who would want to hurt Ray. He said no. He submitted fingerprints and a handwriting sample and was released. Several hours later. But the next day, they returned to Lewis's home to ask more questions about the check and to search his uh, home and vehicle. Uh, Lewis signed a consent to search for him, but told him he didn't have Ray's key or checkbook and claimed they were fishing. In Lewis's car, they found 20 feet of knotted rope, identical to the rope used on the body, and 34 canceled checks belonging to Ray. Lewis was brought in for more questioning. This time, he was read his rights and he had his lawyer present. Lewis said he had filled out all the fields on the check except the signature, which he claimed Ray filled out the day he disappeared. The memo line was management fee instead of loan, and Lewis admitted he didn't know why he did that. Interesting. Not yeah. sketchy still. No, nothing going on. <laughs> yeah, um, so should be this one. Uh, so this is just a... So this is just like a diagram of... Uh, Ray West's home. You can see, yeah. So porch, front door, living room. Was it the SE bedroom? Which one? I believe it was the SE bedroom. Because that's got, like, all that shit in it. Yeah. I guess if they went in and then they just, like, Went to the living room, went to the dining, looked at the kitchen. They didn't check, like, the bedrooms or anything. I don't know. Yeah, it's possible, but it's still kind of weird. In any case, it doesn't matter. Um, They didn't find it. Now, like, this is dealing with it. So, Lewis had a friend that provided an alibi for the evening of uh, July 23rd from 6.30 to 11.30 p.m., the same friend also confirmed that she had asked Lewis to find a buyer for a 32 caliber pistol she owned. That gun was now missing, but the magazine she still had held the same type of ammo that was recovered from the wall in Ray's bedroom. Lewis's fingerprints were checked against the print found on the pulley. There were similarities, but not enough to definitive, definitively prove that they were uh, the same, at least at that time. Fingerprints are so hard to match in like real life. It is not yes, TV. especially especially in 1978. Oh yeah. Uh, so Lewis was charged with murder four days after Ray's body was discovered. The trial was set to begin on October, uh, or sorry, in October of 1979. So over a year later. But days before the trial, Prosecutor James Bell fired, filed for dismissal of the case. Lewis had not been read his Miranda rights, rendering much of the evidence inadmissible, and left them with mainly circumstantial evidence, bloody as it may be, not enough to prove his guilt beyond the shadow of a doubt. Lewis's lawyer, Albert uh, Reederer, had been thorough uh, in pretrial motions. He had successfully argued the police had no probable cause uh, the first time they arrested Lewis. He also had witnesses lined up to testify about Ray's age, high blood pressure, uh, and medications which could have caused his demise naturally. As for the condition of the body, uh, Reederer argued that, quote, It's one thing to kill somebody. It's another thing to dismember them after they're dead. And while dismembering someone after they're dead is repulsive and repugnant, it's not homicide. 
Years later, Reederer continued to advocate for Lewis's innocence, saying, quote, It was my impression that he did not do it. There really was no evidence of foul play prior to West's death. There was no bullet wounds to indicate he would have died a violent death and had been dismembered. And with that, Lewis was free to go. He ate his own legs. What? He ate his own legs or whatever, and then... Oh, he cut off his own legs? Yeah, and then ate No, the the legs legs were up in the attic with him. They were just cut off. Oh, yeah, Uh, he was tired of having legs. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's basically arguing, like, yeah, he probably dismembered him, but I don't think he actually killed him. Like, I think he just found him dead and was like, all right, this is an opportunity. Yeah, fuck around with a dead body, I guess, and not report it. Look, when life gives you lemon, lemons, you make lemonade. When life gives you a dead body, you dismantle it and put it in the attic and then try to, like, forge some checks. I suppose so. Uh, when you see an so opportunity Jim, for money, you see, I mean, a lot of people will do whatever. Yeah. Still, though, like, 5000 is not, like, the most amount of money. I forgot to look up how much it would be, but yeah, I'm but, pretty sure it would only be, like, ten grand. But I mean, that's like more inconspicuous, like than doing like, oh, take fifty thousand dollars out. Yeah, I suppose. Um, so let's see here. Oh, yeah. So the prosecutor, uh, Bell, told reporters the case was, quote, one of the most mysterious, confusing, befuddling, complex, and probably one of the most difficult cases I have ever handled. So Jim and Leanne went back to their accounting business. Leanne worked hard trying to keep the business afloat while Lewis spent more time talking about money than making it. She did the real work while he did busy work or no work at all. But the Kansas City police were not done with Lewis, just as he hadn't been done with his schemes. They suspected he was running a credit card fraud scam. People were finding credit cards linked to their name, but to made-up addresses. So at the time, rural houses around Kansas City didn't have home delivery for mail, like not door-to-door at least. Instead, uh, they'd have all their mailboxes lined up in a row where the carrier could deliver everything at once. Mm-hmm. And, when, and when police investigated these areas, they found extra mailboxes linked to non-existent addresses, just like some, like in a bucket of cement, just like stuck next to the ones that were like dug into the ground. I mean, so, fucking, so, some, so weird. Not, yeah. not really if they're running a scam. It's like, we'll put the extra mailboxes, they'll put some extra ones of these in, and then we can run our credit card scam. Yeah, so someone was sticking a mailbox into a bucket of cement and setting it next to the row of mailboxes and then filing out credit card applications. And once the credit card uh, credit cards came back, or um, they would just haul away the mailbox and go to it somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, back in the day, it was so easy to do credit card scams. Well, it both was and wasn't. Because, um, like, in some ways it was actually harder, but, like, with something like this, yeah, they didn't really, like, check for things like this. Yeah. So, uh, if you knew how to work the system, uh, yeah, you could definitely do it. That someone who was sticking mailboxes in... Uh, where they didn't belong was, of course, James Lewis, along with an accomplice. Uh, Sometimes he made people up, other times he just used the name of a tax client and just took out a credit card in their name. They also believed uh, Lewis was trying to swindle clients on a land deal, uh, which was, you know, 
in a side. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they started trailing Lewis using a tracker placed on the underside of his car. Between May and June of 1981, about $17,500 worth of fraudulent charges were made on the cards. Uh, and again, I didn't look up what that would be today, but like, yeah, pretty significant amount. Uh, and after weeks of stakeouts and tailing, the police had enough to raid Lewis's house, which they did on December 4th, 1981. So, what like, does his, like, wife think of this sort of thing? She just, like, rolls with it, uh, as far as I can tell. So this is just, like, one of the photos of their house. Like, they they are not tidy people. Um, oh, dude, Pepsi, let's fucking go, dude. Gross. <laughs> yeah, but uh, they're disorganized. They had, like, phone books and magazines stacked three to four feet high or just scattered all over the desks. Um, they like the police came in and were just like, "How the fuck do you run a business like this?" I was about to say like they run a business in there and it looks like that. People go in there, yeah, and they're like, "Oh yeah, this is the person I should have doing my taxes." Like this this lady somehow like creates order out of this chaos, and then this dude's over there like scheming in the corner and like money. trying to glad hand you money, 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 I money. Bet, I bet their prices yeah. were good, and that's why people used them. Most likely. Or they were um, really friendly. Yeah. Uh, for the most part, they did seem to have like at least some level of charm or riz. Uh, so they found evidence of the credit card fraud as well as two binders that the police called quote-unquote crime manuals, which had quote-unquote training tasks, instructions on how to commit crimes, how to avoid leaving evidence behind, various other do's and don'ts. Was part uh, they also of that not leave evidence behind was to dispose of the binder once you were done with it but he was still he was still doing the criminal stuff he couldn't get rid of it until he was done yeah he needed his manual Uh, until he was finished (laughs) yeah uh so they also found a book on poisons but that wasn't relevant to their warrant so they took a photo of it and left it behind uh, when the police returned five days later on December 9th to arrest the Lewises, they were long gone, having fled as soon as the search warrant was served. Also, I feel like that binder, the front of it probably said, like, how to be a criminal for dummies. <laughs> well, well, I think these were, like, homemade, just like, oh, yeah, okay, this is, this is, this is my big Jim crime book. <laughs> like... They, uh, so, like, the Looses are long gone. Kansas City has no idea where they, uh, went. But they pop up in Chicago on December 10th, 1981, uh, now going by the name Robert and Nancy Richardson. So Leanne, a.k.a. Nancy, got a job as a bookkeeper at Lakeside Travel. The business was owned by Frederick Miller McKay, heir to the Miller Brewing Company. According to several neighbors, Jim, a.k.a. Robert, uh, spent his first few months in Chicago reading books on economics, history, or computers, as well as writing, talking to neighbors, and teaching the building manager's dog how to do tricks. He's Uh, quite the fellow. Yeah, his neighbors had a wide range of views on him. One neighbor said, quote, I thought he was the smartest man I ever spoke to. He always talked about having, or he always talked about money, not necessarily having some, but he used to go through the financial sections of newspapers all the time and cut out small pieces. He just sounds like a crypto bro. 
I think he would be uh, if he, you know, was younger. Uh, yeah. Others were not quite so positive. Uh, one said, quote, It was like he went to the Salvation Army and bought his suits. He wanted to look dressed, to have a tie and coat on. Hey, it's not his fault he was poor. That's mean. That, I, I don't like those comments. Not everybody can afford expensive suits. Sure. Uh, he would escort Leanne to and from the bus stop every day. I mean, he also doesn't have a fucking job. Yeah. He would escort Leanne to and from the bus stop every day, sometimes riding alongside her and hanging out at the office with her. I don't know why the fuck they would allow that. Uh, but her co-workers thought of, quote-unquote, Robert as both highly intelligent and and just extremely strange. <laughs> Uh, he did eventually get a job at a Chicago tax service, but the owner found a mistake in one of the returns Jim did, and he lost it. He lost his shit just like with the calculator incident, so he got fired again. He then got work through a temp agency. Uh, meanwhile, Leanne didn't take long to realize that McKayhee was blowing it as owner of Lakeside Travel. Being the bookkeeper gave her a much better view of the problem than most of the others. The business's bank accounts were overdrawn, it wasn't paying its bills, and airlines had pulled their ticketing privileges. Uh, McKay was playing fast and loose with both the revenue and the expenses of the company until finally Leanne recognized the writing on the wall and quit. But before she did, she stamped a stack of blank envelopes with the company's postage and a postmark date uh, dated April 15, 1982. The following Friday... Lakeside Travel closed its doors for good. Eighteen members of the staff, including Leanne, were issued their final checks. All of them bounced. Awesome. But Le- yeah, but Leanne and Jim had cashed her check for $511.33 at a currency exchange as opposed to a bank, so they actually got their money before anyone knew what was wrong. On July 27, 1982, the currency exchange sued them to recover the funds. According to the exchange attorney, Anthony Fernelli, quote, they appeared to be more upset than anybody else. They were very adamant in their position that they didn't owe them, that they didn't owe the money, that they had worked for it, and that McKay was a crook and should be made to pay. Got a point. I mean... Yeah, I mean, like, this whole deal goes off in a really fucked up way. Uh, like, like, he... They should have, like, squeezed that money out of him. Because I'm pretty sure he had it in other areas. But, yeah, probably. But, like, the workers should not be having to eat that. Like, that's horseshit. No, not at all. They should never fuck over your workers in yeah. that way. Yeah, like, it, it shouldn't be legal. Um, but Leanne ended up having to pay back between 50 and and $100 to the currency exchange. Meaning she got to keep the rest of it, like, the other 411 to $460. I guess, I mean, we got something out of it, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, they ended up a lot better than, like, the rest of them who got nothing. Uh, but Lewis was furious. He started researching state law and preparing documents to accuse McKay of diverting f- uh, company funds to his personal accounts. He organized Leanne's co-workers, offering to file a claim with the Illinois Wage Claim Board. They found out McKay's bank account numbers, uh, and armed with his documents, uh, Lewis, 
who was still going by Robert Richardson at the time. Uh, let's see here. I I, I want to show you one of his documents. Uh, you guys... Like, I don't know if you can blow that up or not, but... You can click on it and it makes it a little bit bigger. Um, yeah. Or you can open it in the browser. But anyways, uh, this is one of his documents, I guess. That That's a document. Yeah, and if, if you'll also notice, like, it does say R. Richardson on the side. Uh, not, you know, Jim Lewis, because he has embodied Robert Richardson at the time. I mean, at I'm least he's on, to I'm going to be honest. The diagram and everything... It's pretty good. <laughs> it it kind of looks like a political cartoon. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's something. Yeah, I mean, uh, like, if you didn't know what you were looking at, you'd be like, he's probably got his stuff together. Yeah. But. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, it's interesting. So, the Lewis's still going as the Richardsons led several other employees to the wage claim hearing on August 3rd, 1982. Jim Lewis tried to advocate for the groups, uh, asking the claims officer to look at McKay's personal accounts to see if he had been embezzling the company's money for his own private use, which Lewis suspected. Uh, the officer responded basically by saying, "No, I can't do that." Also, who the fuck are you? <laughs> like, Jesus Christ! It's like you're 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 not an employee. You're not a lawyer. Like, you can't like get out of here. So Jim admitted he was not actually an employee and was forced to go sit in the corner while the others argued their case. McKayhee did not appear initially, but his attorney revealed that the company's accounts had all been frozen and the business was insolvent. And that was all the officer needed to hear before ruling against the money, uh, sorry, the employees telling them that there was no money, therefore there was nothing he could do. As the meeting was ending, McKayhee strode in. Jim and Leanne got into a shouting match that lasted for about five minutes and allegedly ended with McKayhee threatening Leanne. Uh-oh. Yeah, so they took the bus home and Lewis was seething. He swore he would make the authorities investigate McKayhee. Which is kind of an interesting, like, threat. Uh, or, like, vow, I guess. Like, it's not like, he'll pay for this or, like, I'll fucking kill him. It's like, I'm gonna make the authorities look into this guy. <laughs> so they took the uh, bus home. Nearly a month later, on September 4th, 1982, Lewis and Leanne packed up and got out of town. They had already paid that month's rent, and they told friends they were headed to Texas to be closer to Leanne's parents. But instead, the couple popped up days later in New York City. They had paid cash for a one-way ticket and had used the name Karen and William Wagner. But once they were in New York, they checked into a dirt-cheap motel, uh, Manhattan uh, hotel under the name Robert and Nancy Richardson. So they were still using that other fake name. Less than a month uh, after they left in New York, seven people would be murdered in Chicago, and Jim Lewis, a.k.a. Robert Richardson, a.k.a. William Wagner, would become the prime suspect in the Tylenol murders. And that's where we'll pick back up next time. Hmm. Yeah, I'm surprised by how quickly I got through all that. Oh, uh, before we finish this episode, uh... that that was just like that was a lot of information, really quickly, like to get to that. But after you 
like said it all. I get like you need all of that information, I guess, to get into the Tylenol murders. Yeah. So like next week we'll talk about why he becomes suspect. Like the the main suspect. Like all these decades later, he's still seen as like the primary suspect. Yeah. Um, but. Next week we'll talk about the actual murders and then the investigation, the other suspects, and um, I guess just, like, how it all ends up. But, yeah, like, this guy's backstory is, like, I, I couldn't figure out what of that I could actually cut, you know? Well, no, I think like, it was I, all I, necessary. I could, I could maybe lose, like, 500 words of that. But, I mean, like, you you still kind of need all that, especially where we're going next week. Yeah. Because things, like, weird guy, weird life, uh, weird, I guess, coincidences so far. But, like, you need all that for, like, where this goes, especially with him next week. Because it's just like, oh, this just got so much weirder. <laughs> yeah. And I know, like, this episode's, like pretty short comparatively uh but um this was a very big information episode gods hopefully next week we can be more witty which i'll pick back up for that i promise i'll I'll bring the wit i'll bring the you guys saying screw kevin you you bring it upon yourself yeah they're still not happy about the npc comment (laughs) that's okay yeah, um, but uh, any final thoughts uh, about uh, old Jim Lewis? He's no. a very eccentric man. Um, I'm excited to learn more about him, or not him, but what comes after this. Yeah, it's... Oof. Um, well, I guess in that case, uh, we'll go ahead and do plugs and wrap it up thanks guys for listening catch us for more at what underscore we underscore consume on twitter and what we consume podcast on instagram michael you doing yours now yeah sure Uh, i wasn't sure how we were doing that part uh yeah you can catch me on twitter at michael ray v uh or x whatever the fuck i'm it doesn't matter and i'm on blue sky at grassman 94 but i don't really do anything on either of them so and i am at king hagathara on both twitter and blue sky other than that bye bye